0: a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books.
1: This episode of Other People is brought to you by Audible, the world's premier provider of digital audiobooks. Over at audible.com, there are over 100,000 titles to choose from in every genre, and you can play them on your iPhone, your Kindle, your Android, whatever you like. And here's a good deal for you. Right now, for listeners of this program, Audible is offering a free audiobook download with a free 14-day trial. Lots of great titles to choose from. Go get a freebie on other people. Go get The Sense of an Ending by Julian Barnes. Or how about Just Kids, the memoir by Patti Smith. Or what about When You Are Engulfed in Flames by David Sedaris. Any one of these titles can be yours, free of charge. To download, just go to audibletrial.com. Slash other people. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash other people. A pretty amazing deal. A free audiobook available right now just for you. These are books. You can listen to them. Go and get them. Oh my God.
0: You
2: are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common.
1: Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think
2: it's really beautiful.
1: Jesus,
2: what a struggle, you know? It was incredible, you know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there.
1: And now here's your host,
2: Brad Listing. Just one person at just one time. Right, <laughs>
1: right. Okay, everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. Welcome back to the program. It's good to have you here. Uh, the guest today is David Shields. He's the author of 12 books, including Reality Hunger, a manifesto published in 2010 by Knopf, and uh, it caused a big stir. And then he's also written a book called The Thing About Life is That One Day You'll Be Dead. That was a New York Times bestseller. He wrote a book called Black Planet Facing Race During an NBA Season, which was a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award. Uh, The list goes on. He's done a lot of stuff. He's published essays and stories in just about every major publication you can imagine. His work has been translated. He's been the recipient of uh, Guggenheim's and NEA fellowships. Uh, You know, you name it. He's done it. And to me, uh, he's one of the more compelling writers out there. And I think he's particularly good and provocative when it comes to writing about writing and books and what books are and, uh, and that sort of thing. He's a very interesting thinker. He's really dug in and uh, put the time in. And he's thought about this stuff over a long period of time. And he's one of those guys who's read just about everything. So I think he's got a really unique and uh, I guess some would say controversial perspective. And he and I are going to be talking at length in just a moment. So before I get there, a quick order of business. Uh, I keep forgetting to mention the weekly breakdown. That's my weekly email newsletter. And, uh, you know, if you want to get it, all you got to do is go to the nervousbreakdown.com and drop your email address in the little field at the top right of your screen. And uh, if you do that, you'll get an email from me every Monday morning. And it's a great way to keep up with what's going on in the show. And, uh, you know, it, it includes a lot of photos and whatnot. I try to keep it entertaining. So if you want that, go sign up for it at the Nervous Breakdown. Uh, what else? Uh, I want to talk about the mind, or I, you know, I was thinking about what I was thinking about earlier today, and I was thinking about that particular turn of phrase. Like I'm thinking about what I'm thinking about, uh, which I guess is somewhat, uh, it's it's of a somewhat similar vein to what David Shields is doing in Reality Hunger, where he's writing about what he's writing about you know, uh, at least to some degree. And I think that's called self-reflexive art. I think that's what it, you know, how it could be properly classified self-reflexive thought. I'm self-reflecting, which I guess is common for me and might be common for, uh, for everybody. But, you know, you get caught up in your own head and you start doing uh, mental figure eights. And to give you an example of what I'm talking about, uh, you know, when it comes to this kind of runaway thinking, uh, earlier today, I'm reading a line from the Lori Moore novel Anagrams and the main character says, Uh, There is only one valid theme in literature, life will disappoint you. And uh, I read that and I started nodding and I was like, yep, that's it, that's right, there's just one. And I believed it, you know, it felt true, I read it uh, and it resonated and then I kept reading for a little bit and then I kind of stopped myself and I asked myself, uh, you know, really, is this really true? Is this really what I think? One valid theme in all of literature, all the books ever written, you know, I started to uh, spin out about it. This is just one character's opinion. Maybe this is Lori Moore's opinion. And so then I started talking myself out of it. And this is pretty much how it goes with me where I'll go back and forth and I can never really decide what I think about anything, you know? And on the one hand, I guess you could call that flexibility of brain, but that's probably too generous. Uh, that's too generous of a a way to put it. Uh, it's more like my brain is kind of like silly putty. It's got, you know, the way that I imagine it is that it's got the consistency of oatmeal or something. And uh, the point is that I, I can uh, tend to have a hard time feeling conviction about stuff. And uh, I start to wonder if, you know, if, if you want to call this elasticity of thought, I wonder if elasticity of thought is a good thing or a bad thing. And so earlier I asked myself that. And the irony is that when, when I you know stop and think about that, uh, you know, I wind up deciding that it's probably both good and bad elasticity of thought is both good and bad which of course is an elastic way of thinking about elasticity of thought so the loop continues it's obnoxious and this kind of thing has become increasingly prevalent as I've gotten older Uh, and and, you know what can you say the mind is a strange thing Uh, my mind uh, would seem to be a strange environment and I can't turn it off you can't turn it off none of us can you can't ever completely silence it you can't press the mute button you know So anyway, speaking of mute, uh, I thought I would tell you a a funny story, like just to kind of lighten, lighten things a little bit. Uh, I had an odd experience once at a grocery store and, uh, you know, I was standing in line. I was waiting to check out. This was years ago. I was in my twenties. Uh, you know, I was, I was, I was a young man. I was single. I believe I was in graduate school. I'm in Los Angeles. I'm a writer. I'm essentially living like a monk. I write all day long. I eat. go to sleep. I read. I mean, I just, that's all I was doing. And so I happened to be at the grocery store collecting uh, some groceries. And then I was in line waiting to check out. And I think there's a pretty cute girl at the register, which is probably why I chose that register. And uh, I remember there was an old man in front of me and uh, he was wearing mustard colored pants. That's, that's what I remember. And uh, he was checking out and the cashier, this cute young girl was trying to make like small talk with him cashier small talk and she was trying to be friendly and he wasn't responding to her at all like no words he was just looking at her and she kept asking him questions and he kept saying nothing just sort of standing there dumbly looking at her and it was it was a deeply weird experience I don't know if I can properly convey it here but you know it was one of those things where you started to feel bad for the girl because she was trying to be friendly and professional and this guy who was old and, and seemed you know, kind of sweet-faced, kind of a sweet-faced old man, he's standing there, but he's just giving her nothing, like absolutely zero. And uh, I'm eavesdropping, and I felt myself kind of wanting to step in and start speaking on behalf of the guy or something, or actually like functioning as a go-between, like some kind of translator. And so the girl keeps talking to him, and he keeps staring at her, and then he starts kind of pointing at stuff, gesturing with his hands, but I can't tell what he means, and neither can she, And there's just no sound coming out of the guy. And so then eventually he reaches into his pocket and he pulls out, you know, this note card. It's like a laminated note card. And he shows it to her. And then he turns around and he actually shows it to me and the other customers in line. And it says that he's a mute. And that he actually can't speak. And it was like an apology and an explanation all rolled into one. And it was like, you know, it's kind of a sad moment. And it was just weird. It was like, oh, God, you know. And so... Just to give you an indication uh, of how demented I can be and how fucked up my mu- you know my mind can get sometimes, like rather you know than than completely empathize with the guy uh, you know and just kind of like focus on that and focus on him and try to imagine what it would be like to live you know a completely nonverbal existence. I instead started thinking about this girl and plotting a practical joke uh, of sorts where I was going to pretend to be mute as well. So I'm next in line. Uh, and I have like a hand cart full of groceries and I start thinking to myself, uh, for some reason, you know, wouldn't it be funny to kind of mess with this young girl as a way of ingratiating myself, like as a, as a, as a, as a flirting mechanism, like, wouldn't that be funny? I'll pretend like I'm mute too. And, uh, I was going to make her, you know, I guess the point was that I was going to make her think she had like a line of mute customers at her register. And it, it wasn't going to be like something where I held out for very long. It was just going to be like the guy would finish checking out and then I, it would be my turn and she would say hello. And I would just kind of stare at her and I would like, you know, just, just kind of like make her think for about like 15 or 30 seconds that, that, you know, I couldn't talk either. And then I was going to be like, I'd, you know, just kidding. And I thought that would actually be funny, like really funny. And that it would actually endear me to her. So then I'm standing there and I'm preparing to do this, you know, as a, as a kind of icebreaker, uh, hoping I would get a laugh. And it occurs to me that I'm not an actor and that if you're going to pretend to be mute, you know, that's, it's actually not very easy to do. It's a, it's actually requires some physical skills. And so, uh, I'm standing there like on the, I'm on the fence thinking, you know, should I do this or should I not do this? And of course I start to worry about staying in character. And then I start to imagine, you know, what, what if I really did pull it off? You know, I see the flip side of it and I imagine this whole like victorious scene playing out in my mind where, you know, there's this confusion on the girl's face and, you know, I'm, I'm doing this great job of pretending to be mute. And then, you know, eventually with perfect timing, uh, I tell her I'm just kidding. And, uh, you know, everybody laughs. And for some reason this triggered in, in real life, this triggered, uh, laughter in me, and I started laughing right there in line as I was waiting and I had to kind of cover my, my mouth because I kind of caught myself and, and I kind of realized what I was doing. I was like, what am I I'm preparing to pretend to be mute to try to endear myself to this? group." I mean, it was completely insane. And uh, so then I'm, you know, I'm, I'm laughing and I'm covering my mouth with my hand, like, like trying to pretend like I'm coughing because I feel bad that the actual mute guy is going to be offended and think that I'm laughing at him. So, you know, long story short, or hopefully a little shorter, I didn't pretend to be mute. Uh, I was too freaked out to do it. I think I made the right call. And the actual mute guy uh, walked out with his groceries, and that was pretty much that. And, you know, the only real, you know, sensory detail that I can remember about him is the, the mustard-colored pants. Those, for some reason, stick in my head. And uh, I guess that's kind of how my mind works, uh, in case you were wondering. It's a bit of an odd story. So I wanted, to, uh, I guess you know, let's let's first of all talk about uh, what you have coming up. I mean, there's the there's the private war of J.D. Salinger, uh, right, and then there is, uh, you know, off in the distance, a book called How Literature Saved My Life, right. Okay, and so is there anything else? Like, is there something that? Yeah,
2: uh, a couple other things. I'm that I'm trying to think of what else is definitely coming up. Is um. Two anthologies that I'm co-editing um, I have a book um, coming out with Norton that I'm the co-editor of called it, it had been called fraudulent fraudulent artifacts but it's now called fakes and it's a series of uh, it's about 50 stories that um, my friend Matthew Vollmer and I co-edited and and we wrote an introduction and we contributed our own pieces and let me see if i can quickly find the subtitle well, anyway the subtitle is something like fakes and then there's a colon and then um
1: <clears throat> i actually have it in front of me it's, oh, it's
2: an, do you have it oh
1: yeah an, it's an anthology of pseudo interviews faux lectures quasi letters found texts and other dubious documents
2: yeah that's it and um you know it's really a fun book we have some great pieces from you know George Saunders David Sedaris Laurie Moore um um many many wonderful writers and uh, Lydia Davis um and um you know basically it's it builds interestingly off of some of my interest and Matthew's interest That you know it's sort of these works to me occupy a relatively interesting middle space between you know that there obviously are works of fiction but they pr- pretend to be real you know they pretend in a way to be nonfiction, or they pretend to be real documents you know and and quickly the fiction takes over and one one realizes that one is in a fictional space but anyway Matthew and I realized that we both had been teaching these stories for, for many years and we combined forces and it's really a fun anthology and I I you know I think of that as you know in an odd way, a kind of extension of reality hunger. You know, some some of reality hunger argues, you know, how can one write fiction in contemporary culture? And to me, this is one way. I mean, th- th- these are works of fiction which I can read with pleasure and, and and admiration in a way that I have trouble reading, say, the conventional short story.
1: Right. And, uh, the, okay, go ahead.
2: No, and then I... then the other anthology that I'm working on with a friend is called Life is Short, Art is Shorter, an anthology of very brief prose, and my friend Elizabeth Cooperman and I are putting together an anthology of about 50 pieces, and we're doing extensive commentary on each one. Oftentimes, our commentaries are actually longer than the individual pieces, and we're just talking about the pleasures of brevity and concision, compression what and again you can see how this comes out of some of my interest in reality hunger and how literature saved my life that you know I'm just really interested in. Um contemporary writing that is remarkably concise. So that's another anthology that doesn't have a publication date yet, but I'm hoping that'll come out. I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean I'm working on other things, but the Sounder book and um, yeah, I'm trying to get anything else that's definitely coming out. I guess that's it. Yeah, I'm working on. Sort of did a fun project with a friend, um, Caleb Powell, where he and I went away to his house in the. He has a friend. We borrowed a friend's house in the country, and we spent seventy-two hours quarreling with each other, just arguing because he and I tend to have a, a very different take on life and on literature. And we, you know, I don't know if you have seen that. That BBC film called "The Trip" with um,
1: um, is it Steve Coogan or my? I- yes,
2: yeah, Steve Coogan yeah. and Rob Ryan who take a trip. Or you know, obviously, my dinner with Andre is a model, and um, even David Lipsky's book with David Foster Wallace. You know, that it's a form I'm very interested in. You know, two people arguing past each other and. And Caleb and I try and take it definitely sort of several notches farther where we just really sort of get in each other's face quite seriously and really try to undermine each other's sense of self. And anyway, that we taped the whole thing and we, you know, we have hours and hours and hours of tape that we have to transcribe. And so anyway, that's a project. That, but anyway, in terms of books that um, are actually definitely coming out in the next, couple of years I guess the only books that have definite well the only one that has a definite pub date at this point is the anthology and then uh, you know I'm how literature saved my life um, I you know I'm um, I'm final I'm hoping to finalize a deal with a publisher shortly and um, obviously the Salinger book. so Brad we can talk about really anything from reality hunger to um, the thing about life or really anything
1: well sure, well yeah, and, and I'm, I'm glad that we have the whole the whole scope to work with, but uh, one of the things that uh, popped into my head when you were uh, talking about the work that you have going on is uh, you know these anthologies are these things that you conceive and then go to publishers and, and ask to do, or are publishers approaching you and asking you to curate essentially
2: well, that's a word I really love is curate, because obviously curate is related to reality hunger. I mean, sometimes people say, you know, that I'm essentially the curator of these texts, which I'm totally happy with. I think it's a beautiful word. I mean, I think of reality hunger as more than than curating, but there's obviously a huge amount of of that in it. But no, these are definitely my projects. I mean, I I often work with a co-editor, and, you know, we almost never have a publisher before, we start and we basically put the whole thing together, don't get the, per, the permissions. We just, I just come up with an idea. Oftentimes I've been perhaps teaching them in the past and then, or they come very directly out of a book of mine. Like for instance, the inevitable, you know, Brad Morrow and I, you know, we saw, well, you know, I've written this book, the thing about life is the one day you'll be dead and it seemed like a natural almost a sequel to that book so no, I mean, I guess if an editor came to me with an idea, I'd consider it perhaps, but I I really, it feels to me almost like a kind, you know definitely a kind of writing, I mean on this book, Life is Short Art is Shorter, Elizabeth and I are writing, you know, really almost many kind of brief essays about virtually every piece where, you know the, the book will be maybe I don't know perhaps 90,000 words and probably easily 45 to 50,000 words will be ours. So no, they they feel to me like acts of um, composition, acts of um, kind of conceptual art, you know, coming up with an idea, finding the pieces to fit in, and then really trying to argue something. I I really take as a a wonderful model John Degada's book the next American, the next American essay. I've been, to a certain degree, inspired by that book in the sense that John, do you know that that book, Brad?
1: Yeah, no, and I uh, I read about a mountain. Uh... Yeah,
2: that's a wonderful book. I, I'm a, a huge fan. To me, that's John's best book yet. I mean, that's a, a wonderful book. But um, John's book, The Next American Essay. On the one hand, he gathers I forget how many pieces, maybe twenty or thirty pieces. But in between, he's creating a beautiful argument from he kind of is unfolding a really nice argument about the nature of nonfiction, the way it's changed, et cetera, et cetera. And I, and I think of the anthologies I'm trying to put together as trying to approach that level of curatorial art.
1: Well, and, and I think, too, you know, one of the things that strikes me, is that especially you know in the aftermath of Reality Hunger, with all of the attention that that book got and all of the conversation that it uh, that it started, you know you've become uh, you know I guess on one hand kind of a lightning rod where people um, you know either feel really passionately about uh, the ideas that you're presenting in in the sense that they, they find that you're articulating things that they feel but maybe haven't found a way to put words to, and then on the other side of it there are people who. Um, you know, respond, uh, in a, in a contrary way where they, you know, sure. they, they find themselves defending, uh, different traditions or different pr- you know, approaches to, uh, really? writing and literature. And, right. You know, I, like for me, you know, because I'm, I was, I was riveted by reality hunger. I found it to be a really fascinating book that really made me think and that also, um, you know, a lot of the thoughts in it really corresponded with, yeah, you know, instincts, creative impulses that I have, like questions that have been sort of gnawing, uh, you know, at my brain. And, mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that strikes me is that, um, you know, as, as a person who has taught uh, at the college level, and I know that you you teach as well, is that, uh, you know, a lot of your work in a, in a really uh, cool way seems to really be an outgrowth of your teaching work. You know, like reality hunger is so ro- – mm-hmm. it seems to be so rooted in – Uh, you know, years of teaching. And I'd love to hear you talk about that because that's a part of it that I don't think, you know, I've, I've heard addressed a ton.
2: Mm -hmm. Well, thanks for, I think your summary was really good that I think that was a fair summary, you know, that, that, you know, for better or worse, you know, I've become a kind of poster child for various things, which is fascinating. And I think you captured well, both sides, that, you know, people for whom the book articulates something they were trying to bring to consciousness, and for, obviously, some other people, the book is really, uh, I don't know what, the death knell of literature or something, I'm not sure exactly what, but um, in any case, um, yeah, I mean, I think, I know you mean, sometimes I and other writers definitely, you know, bemoan the teaching, that you know, they wish they could write more and I probably wish I had a little bit more time to write. But um you know, I I teach, you know, two quarters a year and the other two quarters I'm off so called to write, but um I often do a lot of, of guest teaching around the country, various places. And, you know, I'm pretty busy, but um you know the teaching does feed the writing in ways that I'm not sure I saw many years ago, probably as My own work has has changed. But um, certainly an early book of mine, Remote, came directly out of a course I taught on mass media and literary collage. And much more directly, Reality Hunger was the absolute direct outgrowth of um, a graduate seminar I've been giving for many years um, on the self-reflexive gesture in in the essay and in film that what's happened is that over and i guess i talk about this a little bit in my forthcoming book how literature saved my life but um basically i'll try and give you the shorter version which is that about 20 years ago i was hired at the university of washington to teach fiction writing and i taught fiction writing for a while the first several years i suppose but as my own interests moved away from fiction to nonfiction. You know, I felt as if I were taking money under slightly false pretenses. So I started trying to match up my writing and my teaching and the works I was inspired by. I was doing, you know, I was, I was, I was watching a lot of performance art and stand up comedy, I was, I was watching a lot of, of self reflexive documentary movies. I was reading a lot of anthropological autobiography, and those were the works that were really, really exciting me and yet in in the class, I was sort of giving pro forma uh, lectures on you know James Joyce's the Dead, which is obviously an incredibly great story, but it really had nothing to do with the art that I was trying to produce so Over the years, I developed a graduate course in which I was almost trying to teach myself and my students and also, in a way, my peers, my fellow teachers, what it it was I was doing because the, the University of Washington still has no nonfiction track, which I found both a source of frustration but also a source of inspiration because it's... It's forced me to constantly define what it is I'm trying to do. So over the years, I developed this course, which tended to be just this huge, big old blue packet of quotes that I'd culled from all kinds of sources, my own writing, some new writing I was doing, hundreds of quotes from any kinds of source from Schopenhauer to a recent column of Frank rich's in The New York Times to Nietzsche to Emerson to a riff of Su- of Sonny Rollins about music to and I would just throw these quotes into a packet there was a lot of re- of repetitions in the packet and typos and I almost in a casual way i didn't I just didn 't put citations on them i, I didn 't really care if this came from. From Ralph Waldo Emerson, or this came from you know um, John Cougar Mellencamp. It didn't re- re- really matter to me, and I I wasn't being particularly uh, theoretically clever. I was just just throwing the quotes down. Sometimes I would just have a huge fun. I just pull the quotes and not care. And it's sort of funny that out of this sort of casualness, or even I don't know what you'd call it, I you know, this packet, and each year the packet got more and more coherent, you know, fewer typos, fewer repetitions. um, um, And then the big move that started pushing it toward bookness was I started doing what, what now seems obvious. I started pushing the quotes into categories or rubrics or chapters so that Stuff on memory started gathering toward memory, stuff on hip-hop, stuff on uh, reality TV, stuff about doubt, contradiction, risk. It seemed obvious that if I was to understand the material and convey it to my students, I'd push stuff into categories. And so then at a certain point, you know, it stopped being a teaching document, became a... uh, a working manuscript, and then over over still many years, I then still um, had to get each chapter organized for maximum momentum, and then I had to put the chapters into the maximum uh, momentum. So, and then I constantly have to throw stuff out that didn't work. I'd have to bring stuff up to date. It was a, a years long project, and you can see how absolutely directly this came from my teaching. So that's a very long story, but you can see how the reality hunger has all these theoretical implications now about appropriation, about the death of the novel, blah, blah, blah. But in a way, I was just it began in a very humble way of me trying to teach myself and my students what is the serious nonfiction that we're interested in.
1: Well, yeah, and, and I think too, you know, reading the book and thinking about, uh, you know, books like it, you know, uh, acts of literary collage or collage art in general, you know, right. one of the misconceptions about it is that, you know, it's sort of haphazard or easy. You just slop stuff together and uh, right. and then you try to do it. And if you're trying to, you know, make a book in a similar vein, you start to realize how difficult it is to, to build the momentum that you're talking about to... Maintain a through line to make an argument or, you know, the structure of the thing has its own its own set of challenges, you know, that might not be exactly like writing, uh, you know, a traditional novel or a traditional short story. But if you don't spend the time and, you know, really be, uh, you know, careful about how you put the collage together, it's not going to work. I mean, you know, I think think that I think it's easy maybe to misperceive. Uh, a book like that, and and think that it was just you know slapped together. When in fact it was right. like, it was like brewing for years, and you exactly it's like a process of self education.
2: But do you work in literary collage at all, Brad? Is that a form that you're drawn to?
1: Yeah, I mean I I noodle with it. Like my book, um, you know, without being you know I, my novel that I wrote in my twenties, uh, you know, right. could I think could fairly be classified as having some collage like elements, but it was nothing. Uh-huh. It was nothing that I. I didn't bring like a, a super uh, high level of consciousness to the process. You know, like I, I wasn't at the the, uh, the academic or intellectual level of understanding, you know, of the of the tradition right. that, that I was working in. I was just sort of following my instincts. So,
2: right. You know, well, that's definitely a book I, I, I mean to track down. Now, tell me th- the title again.
1: It's called a- a Attention Deficit Disorder.
2: Oh, yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, it has that great title. And I I mean, it seems for a book like that it should definitely have a collage with a title like that it almost has to have a collage like aspect but I think um you know I mean the a phrase I often use and I'm teaching a a graduate course right now in literary collage and you know I say ad infinitum you know um collage is not a refuge for the compositionally disabled it's an evolution beyond narrative that you know it, it it uh I was often, you know, a, a few reviews of Reality Hunger would say, you know, well, there's some good quotes here, but all all David Shields has done is just grabbed a bunch of quotes from his literary predecessors and just kind of thrown them willy-nilly onto the chalkboard and it's just like you've got to be kidding. I mean, like that I, I mean that um you know, that's just I mean there's, you know, the book can be criticized on on many levels, but the idea that it's just uh, a random gathering of quotes seems to me almost impossible to, to, to consider that, you know, that each, you know, it's, there's a real argument being built in each chapter and the book as a whole. And that um, I think it's, you know, when they talk about legal terms, they often talk about fair use, public domain and transformation and transformation is a really interesting legal term you know in your remixing of someone else's work have you transformed it you know have i taken all these quotes and am i just you know borrowing them because they can say better than i can something or have i actually taken them and and made something new of them and you know obviously i believe the latter that you know, I've taken all these quotes and by by um, rewriting most of them and juxtaposing them, adding a lot of my own words. You know, I've constructed a very specific argument. So yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating form that I'm really particularly aware of now. Not only because I write in it, but because I'm you know currently teaching in the form and students seem fascinated by that. They go in sort of thinking, oh yeah, it's this really casual thing. But in a way it's harder than a narrative work because obviously you're writing a novel. It has a pretty clear criterion. You know, are you keeping the reader's interest? Is there a narrative that unfolds? Is the narrative coherent? I mean, I probably am cartoonizing The novel, but obviously, on some level, most novels work approximately like that. And then with collage, it's such a delicate art. It's, you know, the Picasso line, you know, a great painting comes together just barely. And it's in those beautiful collage works, you know, the work comes together, but by a very thin thread, it seems
1: yeah and and you know it should also be noted like an interesting uh or an important point is that you know literary collage uh, you know has its uh its elements of controversy, but then you look in other art forms and you look at hip hop or you look at the visual arts and you know it, it's total it seems to be totally permissible and normal for right. you know collage to exist and and you know then you start to do mashups and stuff on the page. And, uh, you know, you have some people who react against that.
2: I know what you mean. I mean, that's so much of my argument that, um, you know, it's not as if in visual art that we're painting now um, realistic portraits of 15th century royalty. Or it's not as if in contemporary music that we're endlessly recomposing Bach's concerti. You know, those are really great works, but art forms move forward somehow in the literary arts in a strange way, you know, the, the the default mode is still you know, in a sense, you know, Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. You know, that's a really good novel. It was written almost 200 years ago, but still that in a way becomes the model for a lot of work, and so, I mean, I'm not picking on Jane Austen. It could easily be, you know, Thackeray or or Dickens or Flaubert or Tolstoy, all of whom were, you know, obviously magisterial writers. But you know, that art forms advance, culture changes, art like science progresses, in my view. And it's very strange to me how contemporary culture is. I think contemporary literature is, in in many ways, for me, in a period of incredibly conservative retrenchment in which a lot of novels are praised and this is actually meant as praise and it's hard for me to hear how, could, how this can be praised. If people say this is a wonderful 19th century novel. People would say about this book, by I think his name is something like Chad Harblack or something like that, The Art of Fielding or they talk about Franzen's book freedom, you know, this is a wonderful 19th century novel, as if that were praise. I mean, that's to me, like, just absolutely, uh, that's just blistering criticism to me. I mean, that we are living in 2011, and to me, it should be, this is a wonderful novel of the 21st century that captures what it's like to live now, not what it was like. It shouldn't have the rhythms and the coherence and the characterization and the pacing and the world view of a 19th century novel and that, you know, that I'm just, in a way, I feel like the one of my projects, and I'm by no means the only person, but certainly part of my project is to kind of bring literature kicking and screaming into the 21st century and have it have the equivalent velocity and violence and concision and brevity and excitement and visceral um, kind of channel-changing Nimble footedness, you know, of contemporary culture. I just I mean you're right. I guess that's somewhat controversial, but it seems to me like just prima facie true that the other art forms advance with the culture, and and for reasons I I semi understand, but don't entirely understand. It seems as if literature is pulling up the rear. And like, do you understand why that is? I mean, why in a way does literature remain? It seems behind the other arts in its artistic advancement. It just seems like it's a more conservative art form in certain ways.
1: Well, yeah, it might and it might have something to do with the way that it's taught. I mean, I think back to what books I was being fed when I was in school and there there seems to be some lag, you know. I, I mean, right. obviously there are courses that you take where you're reading contemporary literature in right. the classroom, but for the most part, most of the books that I was reading in like say junior high and high school, uh, you know we're sixty or seventy years old. You know 50, 60, right. 70 years old, even
2: so, older. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So yeah, even older. So there can be a lag there, but right. you know it's it's interesting. I I don't know exactly why. You know I think that's kind of right. like one of those nagging questions. But uh, mm-hmm. you know, let me ask you like just to just to kind of pose. Um, you know. Uh, I'm sure a question that you've gotten, or an idea that has been thrown at you a lot of times uh, since you published *Reality Hunger*. You know, what do you say to someone who who says to you, "You know, people they 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 love story, they love narrative, they'll always need and be drawn to really great, really well told story." Uh, mm-hmm. You know, how does that jive with your particular view of literature?
2: Right, I mean, I definitely heard that you know I was uh, you know traveling on behalf of reality hunger for several months after the hardback and then again after the paperback and um you know, I would give talks and lectures and readings and panels, and obviously that question would typically come up, you know they would basically say, you know, seems like you're trying to throw out the book with the bathwater, like are you actually against story, and people would say you know that we that we dream in story, you know, children lo- love stories, you know, that most of us love to watch, you know, movies that are, you know, it's hard to, t- you know, turn off a compelling television show or movie, someone around a, a dinner table telling a story, people are held by it if it's a well-told story. And, you know, obviously I'd be, you, know, you could even say that we're our, our, our DNA is wired as human beings to, to follow a story. And obviously, I agree with all that. I mean, that would be hard to quarrel with. I think what I seem to be wanting to say, trying to theorize about and to embody it in, in my actual work, is the idea, of, of course, stories still exists, But I think that for most of the well, world, I don't know, if for most of us but for people who are really paying attention to contemporary culture and to the way in which our brains are been you know the way that we that we live differently now the way that we think differently we process information differently it seems to me that i want you know story to catch up with contemporary um culture, contemporary pace and velocity. I mean, for some reason I was thinking of this novel. A a novel was recently published about, um, like, a high school kid who maybe, I think perhaps that she shows a sex video of herself and that the video goes viral and et cetera, et cetera, and i haven't read the book, and maybe it's a good novel, and maybe it's not a good novel, but that you know I feel like we've already and it, but I got the sense that it was you know a kind of a typically paced novel that sort of moves slowly but surely through the paces, but you know I feel like wow, i don't know if we need that particular novel, we've already processed that narrative in almost like almost something like real time as we hear about. Various vid- videos that happen, or um, people—you know—people committing suicide because a video goes viral, or I don't know. I was just thinking that, or that the ways in which people, you know, like there will be a very compressed moment on the web that will somehow ga- galvanize everyone's attention, or you know, the ways in which stand-up comedians work or performance artists or, I don't know, so much of contemporary culture as, you know, the way I I seem to like it is, you know, to to say it is, you know, let a thousand discrepancies bloom. And there's so many of the books I really love, of course, are processing story, but they're processing many, many stories simultaneously, whether it's, you know, Eduardo Galeano's The Book of Embraces or Renata Adler's Speedboat. Or Maggie Nelson's Blues, Sarah Manguso's forthcoming The Guardians, Amy Fusselman's The Pharmacist's Mate, Leonard Michael's Shuffle, Simon Gray's Smoking Diaries, Um Spaulding Gray's Morning, Noon and, and, and Night, you know, so many, so many books, you know, are are full of story, but they're, you know, they they're pivoting constantly you know they'll tell a story in the first person they'll pivot from that into something scholarly they'll they'll pivot from that into something repertorial they'll go into a moment of fantasy or fiction they'll they'll pull something from from someone else you know they're they're telling many many stories at, at the same time the thing i seem to find really tedious is the sort of i don't know kind of mononuclear the sort of unilateral story in which you pretend the whole world is compressed into, you know, a single couple or, you know, as if somehow, I just feel like that we are all living so many stories at so many, you know, at at the same time. And that so much of what's interesting to me about contemporary documentary film or video or music is the way in which the public and private are colliding and I think the thing that that I really resist is, you know, the novel by by Ian McEwen or by, you know, Franzen or whoever that seems to to think you can tell a single plotting, carefully paced, somewhat predictably plotted, uh highly coherent novel with sort of Freudian characterization and long scenes, which, you know, that all feels to me as if it's an understanding of story that dates to around 1860 or so, 1880, as if modernism ha- hasn't happened, postmodernism ha- hasn't happened, post-structuralism hasn't happened. And that's just not the way that I experience the world as a single... Um, Slowly paced narrative.
1: Well, and and but you know, would what what would you say? Because like I hear this argument too, where people say that uh, you know, the the work that they're producing, the literature that they love, you know, works against the grain in a culture that's gotten increasingly fast paced and bite sized, and uh, you know, uh, that that lacks depth. And so they're saying that books are sort of the antidote to that, and that if books um, you know, I've, I've heard like the fast food, slow food um, argument made. I've made that. Like, I do believe that right. that, that books are kind of like the the uh, the opposite of fast food when it comes to art, and that that it performs a, a valuable function. And what I'm wondering, and I'm sure, I, you know, I, I can kind of guess what you'll say, but you know, I, I don't think that the kind of books that you like, or that the kind of books that you're advocating for, uh, necessarily you know, contradict that. Like you think that it can be both ways, like books that uh, reflect the culture and books that, um, you know, reflect the speed of, of information and all the rest. That doesn't necessarily mean that they're, that they're, uh, you know, what's the word championing like the degradation of culture or whatever. That doesn't, it right. doesn't mean that they're fast food.
2: Right. No, I think that's, a, you know, I think that's a, you know, that's, that's not a bad argument that, you know, that there, there is, fast food and then there's slow food. And obviously I'm not championing, um, a lot of bite-sized culture that somehow mimics, um, you know, the quick cuts of, uh, reality TV or, you know, the most mindless web surfing or just endless texting or anything like that. And I think that's a Somewhat of a cartoonizing of my position, I mean it's the books that I've mentioned and many other books i've mentioned you know reward um, uh, you know very very careful reading i mean they're very um you know to me profound, complex, labyrinthine um demanding works um, I think the whole idea of fast food and s- slow food kind of i think what People say, you know, that a book sh- should work against the culture in that way and it should kind of be a, a refuge from the world's pace. I mean, that sounds good on some level, but I think um, what it ends up being in an awful lot of cases is a kind of escape or Nostalgia or dream world that i've always loved this line It, it forms the epigraph of my forthcoming book, a line of Samuel Johnson, who says a book should either allow us to escape existence or teach us how to en- endure existence, and I just think that's just such a beautiful articulation of it. and you can obviously can guess where I fall out, and it's just simply my preference i mean. I can't say I'm right. I just find more adult, more serious, more mature a work which is overtly wrestling with how to endure existence. The other quote that I really love that is relevant to to this question is from David Foster Wallace who I also quote in my forthcoming book where Wallace was asked, what's so great about writing? And he said, well, that we're existentially alone on the planet. You can't know what I'm thinking and feeling, and I can't know what you're thinking and feeling. And writing at its very best is a a bridge constructed across the abyss of human loneliness. And it's just such a beautiful and, to me, sufficient answer.
1: Yeah, that's, guess, that says it. I mean, I've, I've even brought that that quote up in, in a paraphrased way in previous episodes of this show. Like, it just, yeah, I
2: mean, that's so beautiful, and I think that Wallace himself, to me, embodied it far more powerfully in his essays than he did in in his fiction, which I find David Wallace's fiction often trapped in a lot of kind of furniture moving and kind of labyrinthine plots that to me don't tell me a huge amount about the character's predicament. But in his two books of essays, he is wrestling, you know, massively with, with that very question. And it's it's what, what Gordon Lish calls, you know, how the writer solved the problem of being alive. That's is what I want sort of first and foremost on the page, which is basically to say I'm a writer of pers- of personal essay. I mean, that's what the essay does. You know, I am interested in some works of fictions. For instance, I I like Ben Lerner's first novel called Leaving viatosha Station, which forms the prologue of my forthcoming book. I talk about that, that book and use it as a platform t- to talk about what my book is going to be. And I I reviewed uh, Ben's book for the LA Review of Books, and it's an incredible book. It's phrased as a novel. It feels, you know, somewhat memoiristic. It feels like a kind of romanoclef about Ben Lerner's experience in Spain, but it clearly has been at least somewhat fictionalized. And, you know, it it, it is framed as a work of fiction, but it is, is, again, it's, it's wrestling very intelligently and very rigorously with how the bed learner figure solves the problem of being alive in contemporary culture. So it seemed to me a serious book in a way that to me, a lot of widely praised novels strike me as essentially entertainment. Just, I mean, the whole page turning aspect of novels, just I don't know what, it's, I don't know if it's my creeping middle age or what, you know, I'm 55 and, you know, I'm not exactly at death's door, but, you know, I'm, you know, deep into middle age and I'm, I want a work to tell me what to, you know, to really um, investigate quite seriously what life's about, whereas just another novel going through the paces. I just don't have time for it. Seems I've I've read thousands of those novels. I've read, you know, as many great n- novels as I could over over many many years, and to read yet another pretty good novel that whose main impulse is to entertain me. I just don't find, especially a a long novel. You know, I guess I really like you know a book to earn its way you know what's called you know kind of um what was that line of of raymond carver's about um pound
0: pound?
2: anyway basically how much can you lift according to how much you weigh that you know you want your you want to earn your weight and you know so many works seem to try to club us over the head with their massive weight as if somehow the fact that it's 680 pages is an impressive accomplishment. But as we all know, it's much harder to write a short letter than to write a long letter. And so anyway, I'm sort of rambling a bit here, Brad, but um, what, what I forget, I guess we were talking about story and or no? Where we what, what was the question? I can't even remember. Well,
0: no,
1: it's 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 it was it was rooted in like story, and then
2: oh um, yeah, and about and about I forget how you even trigger this. I guess you asked about story, and then I guess I was just sort of going on about how yes, I'm interested in story, but oh yeah, the whole idea that you know. I want story, but I want story in the service of an investigation, and I want to splinter the story to reflect contemporary culture. And, you know, some of the books I really love, of course, have story, but they are broken into, you know, there there are are many stories being told simultaneously, i.e. they're works of collage, and the story is hugely subservient to the investigation, whereas I find in so many works, again, Franzen is to me a good example where these these novels are ostensibly about, say, freedom or about, say, the idea of psychological and cultural correction, but really the works give only the merest lip service to investigating those ideas. Those are very lightly held tropes. And really what Franzen's investigating is just essentially a storyteller, a competent old-fashioned storyteller, And then they have a sort of patina of intellectual seriousness. Oh, it's about freedom. It's about cultural course correction. But but really, they're kind of family albums, you know, a la, you know, just very old-fashioned kind of family stories, the way one would write in the mid to late 19th century. And I just don't see how that's, Serious contemporary art. It's just not. It's a, a sort of dream. It's a kind of a retreat into a previous dreamscape. I guess that's where we began. You were saying, well, how about the value of, you know, of books pushing back against the sort of sound bite culture that we live in? And, you know, the works that I'm espousing, say, Simon Gray's thousand page, four volume book smoking diaries i mean you know that book pushes back quite hard against soundbite culture but it's telling many stories simultaneously
1: well and and just to dial back a little bit you 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 know and to try to find like a an elegant segue you talked about family albums uh with regard to you know franzen's work i am curious to know a bit more about you you know transitioning a bit out of a literature and and you know just to, to hear a bit about like how you you know where where you're from how you were raised family stuff like wh- who are you <laughs> <laughs> that's a
2: good question i
0: would
2: if i knew i would probably not not write <laughs> if i had it all all figured out <laughs> but on a literal level you know i was born in la uh, in, in 1956 and uh I moved to San Francisco with my family when I was six, and I was then raised in San Francisco uh, from six to age eight, eighteen. And I went to Brown for college in Iowa for graduate school, and you know I moved to back to L.A. for a while. I think after graduate school that I taught in upstate New York for a while. And then I've been teaching in Seattle for about 20 years and um, at the University of Washington. I mean, these are just the most sort of superficial narratives of my life. And, um, you know, I was both of my parents were um, neither is still alive, but both were, um, you know, kind of, I would say, sort of politically active left wing journalists. And I feel like that formed me in all kinds of interesting ways that, you know, growing up in San Francisco in the 1960s, and my parents were very politically involved in um, anti-war protests and desegregation movements in the California schools. And that was just a huge part of the world I grew up in, and they were... uh, my mom wrote for the nation and the new Republic and my dad wrote for various kind of Jewish welfare orga- organizations in the California democratic party. And, you know, it was just very big part of the world I grew up in. And I both, you know, I'm not politically active in the overt way that they are, but I think, I don't know, there's part of me that, um, you know, they kind of taught me how to be a troublemaker in a certain way. You know, I mean, I you're supposed to push against the culture, and I think maybe it took me a while to get there, but certainly beginning with a book like maybe, you know, certainly Black Planet, which came out in 99, but maybe even a book like Remote in 96, you know, that those books are, you know, they meant to, uh, that your art, I think, is meant to exist at, you know, in a way, an adversarial angle in a relationship to the culture. It shouldn't just be, you know, another sugar pill that the culture takes and absorbs and goes on. You're supposed to throw, like, a monkey wrench into the proceedings. I mean, you think of the great works of art, you know, revolutionary works of art. Those works are masterpieces, whether, you know, Joyce's Ulysses or Monet's Water Lilies. You know, they, they do something new. They take things into new places. And so I feel like I was, my parents were, you know, primarily journalists and activists, but I feel like they taught me a little bit on some little to be, you know, I don't know, to exist in an adversarial relationship to culture, I think. And I also think I was informed by their, their journalism that, you know, I, I, I became a, a fiction writer because i found i didn't care to become a journalist and then in a way i've sort of come back to a kind of i don't know what all kind of a sideways nonfiction or a kind of insane journalism or a kind of journalism for attention deficit disorder or something <laughs> like i do i do a kind of anti-journalism i mean it's a kind of a you know, like I'm very interested in the real, but I'm interested in problematizing the real. It's hard not to think of that as a kind of conversation I'm having now with my no longer alive parents. there. I'm sort of taking their jour <laughs> excuse me I'm taking their journalism and sort of you know kind of messing with
1: it now were you were you an only child, or did you have siblings?
2: I had a sister who's a year older than me and she lives about an hour away from me in Tacoma.
1: Oh wow, okay. So you both wound up in Washington.
2: Yeah, just by chance. Yeah.
1: And so is she a writer too, or is she in, in some uh, other
2: she's in a different field. She she studied American history uh in graduate school, but she hasn't pursued it professionally. But she too happens to work at the University of Washington in the admissions office, Uh, and so, anyway, she's, um, she's not a writer per se, although at work she does an awful lot of writing of the information in the catalogs and stuff on the website for the University of Washington.
1: So, tell me a little bit about what you were like as a kid. You know, like 15-year-old David Shields, what was he like?
2: Well, 15, well, I had a very bad broken leg. That was a supposedly a big deal. I was a quite, I was a very, I was going to say a serious athlete, but I was a very d- devoted athlete. I was really into sports. I was just, even though I was kind of a, a shrimp, I was a short, I'm, I'm pretty tall now. I'm about one. but as a, in high school, I was kind of small, like 5'4", 125 pounds, 130 pounds, very small little guy. And uh, But I was just terribly devoted to basketball, of all things. And I <laughs> had been very devoted to baseball. I was just a, a really good shooter in basketball, but I, I wasn't particularly fast or quick or strong. So I was, you know, I'd have to, and then I was, and then I had this very badly broke, bad broken leg and i guess in the family mythology that was a sort of big break no pun intended whereby i you know became less devoted to sports and much more devoted to sort of cere- cerebral act- activities well I, w- then, I was
1: going i was going to ask so you like did that get you reading i mean or were you always a reader or did the the broken leg really set you on that course
2: i think um suppose i don't know it's hard to re- to remember, it wasn't as if before the broken leg, which happened um, toward the end of my sophomore year of high school, I was some you know totally mindless jog. And then suddenly, I broke my leg and and was reading you know Robert Musil's The Man Without Quality. Suddenly, you know, I mean, it, it was more you know I was reading you know Updike and Hemingway and Salinger and and Hunter Thompson and you know stuff like that. But it, but it, I wasn't super in you know I was into it and you know, in the family mythology, sort of, my sister was this sort of, you know, terribly um, academic person, and I was sort of, the a jock, you know, and, um, you know, I'd be on the school teams and stuff, even though I wasn't exactly a star or anything, but I was quite into tennis and basketball and, and baseball and track and stuff, and then, I think, you know, that literally I was down for about a year and a half where I literally couldn't play sports. It was quite a bad broken leg. I was in traction. I had a body cast. I had a um, a, a, um, a brace on my leg. What, what, I had how, how
1: did it happen? What I mean, what happened to it?
2: I was playing a game of football on, on the beach, and uh, I was just badly – I was tackled in a very odd way, and it was just, the leg just was, was badly broken. Ugh. But I also think – the one other aspect that was, I think, that clearly formed me in, in even even more profound ways was that as a kid, I had a very bad stutter, and you can probably hear glimmers of it even in our talk now and then, but, you know, as a kid, it was a very, very, very big deal, and I think, um, you know, I've written a novel about it called Dead Languages about growing up with a stuttering problem, and, you know... You know, I think sometimes if I'll give a reading, it'll come out a little bit more. And it's been a lifelong process of getting, you know, increasingly more control over it. Sometimes it comes out more or less. I've learned all sorts of ways of dealing with it. But, I mean, a big part of my childhood was sports, my parents' journalism and activism, you know, and definitely stuttering. And so somehow that was a very... um combustible brew somehow. I mean, somehow that was a a rich mix, you know, in a way I've written about sports, I've written about family, politics, Jewishness, moralism, and then I've written definitely about language. I mean, I feel like a lot of my work is about communication, miscommunication, language, can people connect, can they not connect? I mean, that in a way is one of my big themes.
1: Well, and, and what was, I mean, did you get along with your folks? I mean, I guess in high school, everybody has like contentious relations, but I mean, was it generally, I mean, it sounds like your parents are pretty intellectual.
2: Um. Yeah, I mean, they were more cerebral, they were more activist than cerebral, but you know, they, they were, you know, they were smart people. Um. You know, they weren't, Hugely intellectual, they were hugely interested in grand ideas, but they were, you know, they were thoughtful people who read and thought about things. I got along pretty well with them. I mean, I, you know, I, you know, I've had my warfare[s] with them. I mean, I think my mother was um, a complicated presence that my dad struggled lifelong with quite serious manic depression he was was in and out of hospitals his entire life for bipolar stuff and um
1: but yet he lived to be what i mean didn't he he was like
2: almost 99 (laughs) Yeah, he was and I've, i've read recently that there's a connection actually i forget what it was i think between kind of Manic depression and a certain kind of vitality. It's almost like that mania gives you a kind of odd testosterone push. He was a very vital guy physically deep into his 90s. He was playing tennis and running and golfing, and he was like this bizarre sort of physical specimen. And I've read recently that that's quite common in people who suffer from... From bipolar disease, which he did quite severely
1: see that's another that's my, the upside right there
2: yeah exactly <laughs> and then and my mom was um someone who you know i don't know whether it was in relationship to my dad being somewhat absent without leave a lot, but she became a very um you know strong, somewhat draconian presence that you know I sort of was just very um strong presence, you know, somewhat distant or chilly. And so I think she's had a somewhat, you know, she's, I've got a lot from her. I think, I think my work ethic comes from her. She definitely taught me how to work a lot. And, but I also, it was a somewhat mixed blessing. She was, I didn't have a particularly close relationship with her. She was a somewhat formidable presence.
1: Interesting, and you have and you have a, a children of your own, correct, or a child?
2: A child, Natalie, who's a freshman at the Rodin School of, of Design in, in Providence.
1: Oh wow! So she went back east too. And so when you were uh, when you were in high school, it sounds like you must have gotten good grades. If you went to Brown, right? You were a good student.
2: I was. I mean, I wasn't. Uh, <clears throat> I was a good student. I wasn't. You know, off. The charts, I was a good student and you know even a very good student, but i wasn 't um, you know an academic um, whiz kid i don 't think, but um, it was mainly that I had found already by the end of high school a focus on writing and brown as you as you may know, has a very good undergraduate or at least a very dedicated writing program, and I think it really intrigued. You know, Brown say that you know that I was you know I had had good grades and and and, and good SAT scores, but it was um you know I was someone who clearly had a path. I was very interested in nonfiction and fiction writing.
1: Like r- right away, I mean, even as a you know, as when did it when did it trigger? Like, do you have a sense of when you really started to focus in on that as something you were going to pursue? Did you always know, or was it like you know when you got to college?
2: Well, one thing I was going to say Brad is that my phone is starting to beep so it could be I'll have to hang up pretty soon if the phone's the battery on the phone for some reason starts to go after about an hour but um so if, if the phone starts to fade I'll let you know but um you know I was you know the editor of my junior high school paper editor of my high school paper I wrote for my college paper I wrote short stories in high school I mean it was all terrible I wasn't a good writer um but I feel like a big, you know, so that, you know, as early, say, as I remember, like, in fifth or sixth grade, I wrote an autobiography for my my fifth grade. And it was, you know, in the teacher's estimation, it was so good that she thought my sister wrote it, you know, because my sister was the good student. I was the less uh, typically impressive student. So, you know, as early as grammar school, I was... I was writing a little bit and I um and then I think a big thing for me was studying with John Hawkes at Brown. He was his writing is very different from mine, but he was very encouraging. Not that he he loved my writing, but he saw my ability to tap into emotional stuff and he was very encouraging. I feel like a really big moment was sophomore year at Brown was studying with Hawkes. I feel like at that point the, the die was definitely cast
1: well and you I mean it's like to, just to, to briefly touch upon like literary ambition uh you know I, I and forgive me if I'm misremembering the details of this but uh, can, can you confirm this that like when you were at brown you were in the library and did you <laughs> did you really write on the wall I shall i shall this des- i will dethrone dethrone Shakespeare.
2: <laughs> <laughs> i mean I've, I've written that in at least one of of my books, and you know, I can't even remember anymore whether I literally, scra- that seems hard to believe, but I think... Please,
1: just go with it. I, I, I want so go badly. Go with it, right. Yeah, yeah, I know. I, will I think,
2: dis- I mean, I shall dethrone Shakespeare. I mean, I probably said it in my, you know, <laughs> collegiate absurdity and grandiosity, you know, where I said, I mean, I do think it's a very edible thing that, you know, my God, Shakespeare just looms over everyone as if you know, he's he wrote such amazing work that you think, like, he couldn't possibly have written it. It was a team of clergymen or whatever. I mean, he, in a way, there is this feeling of, like, of why even bother if this one guy wrote 36 plays that seem, you know, just as if they were written by God. And so I do remember thinking quite specifically, like, you know, God, if I'm going to write, you know, I have to do – I'm going to write better than I mean I mean, I've got to ride better than, than this bearded wonder, and you know. And if I scratched it, let's say that I did, we'll go with it. Let's say that I scratched somewhere, it somewhere
1: wall. in the library. Uh, there you Brown, go. Your words remain. It's it's like a, the Hunchback of Notre Dame. You know, it's like exactly. <laughs>
2: let's bring. The, we'll bring the film crew to the fourth floor of the Rockefeller Library, the West Side. There's a, a very specific carol I always studied at. Let's bring the film crew in and, and double-check that. <laughs> All
1: right, David. Well, listen, I, uh, I appreciate the time. It was great to talk with you and uh, to hear your thoughts, and we'll look forward to, uh, to reading you know the, the next book, uh, How Literature Saved My Life, as well as the anthologies that you're, uh, that you're curating.
2: Thanks a lot, Brett. R- really good chatting w- w- with
1: you, as always. All right. You take care of yourself. Take care, man. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, everybody. There you have it. That's the program. That's David Shields. Please be sure to check him out at davidshields.com. He's also on Twitter, and his handle is at underscore David Shields. And uh, you can find him on Facebook, too. This show can be found on the web at otherpeoplepod.com, on Twitter at otherpeoplepod. It's got a Facebook page. And if you want to uh, email, you can email at letters at otherpeoplepod.com. Please be sure to check out Nervousbreakdown.com, Follow it on the Twitter at TNBtweets. You can uh, check it out on Facebook as well. And don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brad Listie. Uh Final thoughts. Closing thoughts. Thinking about uh, what I'm thinking about. Uh, I think I'd like to close with a salute to David Guderson, who just won the coveted Bad Sex and Fiction Award handed out every year by the Literary Review over in the UK uh david's latest book is ed king a reimagining of the oedipus myth in the second half of the 20th century and the uh, the winning scene from that book is described as the part where the mother has sex with her son so i figured i'd read you the passage in question with a little musical accompaniment so that you can understand the full erotic majesty of Guderson's prose uh here goes These sorts of gyrations and 5 cents choreographies with variations on Ed's main themes played out episodically between 10 p.m. and 10 a.m. when Diane said, Let's shower. In the shower, Ed stood with his hands at the back of his head like someone just arrested while she abused him with a bar of soap. After a while, he shut his eyes and Diane, wielding her fingernails now and staring at his face, helped him out with two practiced hands one squeezing the family jewels, the other vigorous with soap, with the soap and warm water treatment. It didn't take long for the beautiful and perfect Ed King to ejaculate for the fifth time in 12 hours while looking like Roman public bath statuary. Then they rinsed, dried, dressed, and went to an expensive restaurant for lunch. So there you have it, folks. Uh, Not really sure what else I can add to that. Thanks to Kill Rockstars for all the great music, except for that last song, which is from a porn film. Please check out Kill Rockstars at killrockstars.com. I will be back soon. Uh, In the meantime, please don't pretend to be mute. Whatever you do, do not pretend to be mute. And please remember to wear your mustard-colored pants.